All right, well, the last uh, four weeks or so, we've been working through a brief series that we will finish here in a couple weeks called Gospel Culture before moving into Acts, um, written um, as a sequel to Luke that we'll be starting in the first week of September. And so the last four weeks, we've, we first just, we looked at gospel culture, right? That, that, and all we're saying by gospel culture is it's what should the life of the church look like, right? Like, why, why would it be this fragrant aroma when we know that many churches are, but there are also churches that have, have lost that, right? Where, where you see more hypocrisy or you see powerlessness. Like, why is that? And so the, the, the fragrance that we are supposed to be emitting, right, to those around us, both within and outside of the church, um, is this culture, right, where you walk in and you go, these are, these are my people. And so we begin to just kind of bore into that a little bit. And so we, we looked then one week at the one and others of Scripture, which there are almost five dozen that should mark the life of, of Christians within the church, of how we care for one another, so that we're praying for one another, we're bearing one another's burdens, we're forgiving one another, we're showing hospitality to one another, and on and on and on. And then we looked at mission, like what does it look like then for the church to pursue those who don't yet know Jesus? And then once again, we do that together. We're not lone rangering that. And then last week, um, how do we fight sin, right? And that we do that as well um, in community as we confess sin to one another, that we walk in freedom and in hope as we fight sin, and that our primary way we do that is by delighting in Jesus more. It's not white-knuckling and just not doing it, but it's that seeing that Jesus is beautiful, and it begins to release the grip that sin has on our heart, or it begins to become distasteful and bitter to us. And this morning, we're going to look again at another another element of what gospel culture should look like in the church, right? As we look at what holds our heart, what holds our affection, what holds our attention. And we're going to look specifically this morning um, at finances, at money. Listen, if you've been around Redeemer very long, um, you'll know we don't actually preach on money very often. Um, I think churches as a whole are, that's kind of the norm. People expect that. And so when you walk in, you can almost imagine, oh, I'm going to roll my eyes. It's a money sermon. Out of um, probably my own fear and insecurity, we have not done a lot of teaching on money over the years. And yet, um, money is not simply this practicality where there's rules and regulations. It is a heart issue. It is a discipleship issue. And so this morning, we're going to look at it. But here's the thing. There are over 2,000 verses in Scripture about money. Right? Over 2,000. We are like, this is a drop in the bucket. Whatever we can accomplish this morning is a, a, just a mere drop compared to what Scripture has to say about our hearts, about money, and about how we honor the Lord with our wealth, as Proverbs 3 would say. And the reason why, why do this and it's my talk about money in regards to gospel culture. Because the larger culture around us is constantly discipling and shaping us to believe that there are standards and expectations that we should live by that are not biblical. Right? As we started the first week, we said there's a lot of great things about West Texas culture, but one of the poor things, one of the, the non-biblical aspects 
is individualism, right? This belief that we don't need one another, which is not a biblical idea. And then the American culture that teaches us to be consumers and takers only, right, is not a biblical mandate. It's not a biblical ethic. And so we know the culture around us is constantly moving us and shaping us ever so subtly to believe that certain things are the norm and the expectation and the standard. And then when we come to Scripture and we see that they're not, right, we feel that contrast, we feel that war. And if we're not intentional, we will not drift towards Jesus. We will not drift into holiness. We will drift into looking like everything that's out there around us. And so that we have to be intentional to fight and to combat this. And so if you have a Bible with you, or a phone that you'll be typing the passage and looking at the passage, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy is a short epistle um, towards the, the end of the New Testament. You'll see First and Second Thessalonians. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone a little too far, go back to the left. First Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 6. As Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, he's ending um, this, this first letter, and we'll begin in verse 6, and he says this, But godliness with contentment is a great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then if you go over to verse 17. And as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which is proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so as Paul is finishing this, right, writing to Timothy, there's, there's a lot of richness, um, no pun intended there, in regards to, to money and, and the impact that it has on our hearts. And if we go back to verse 6, he, he just merely tells him, godliness with contentment is great gain. Like contentment is one of those things that we all long for and we struggle with. Like to look around and simply be content with where we're at. With, and, and listen, contentment doesn't mean settling. right? It's not going, ah, it's good enough. Contentment is deep-rooted peace. That right, we are where we're supposed to be. That we have what we need, that we have sufficient amount, right? And so the, the first thing I want us to notice out of verse 6 is that ultimately when we talk about finances in any regard, it is not merely a practicality. It is a heart issue. It is, it's an issue of how we perceive the Lord and how we perceive our own heart. It is an issue of our heart. And so the question, right, is, is Paul tells Timothy, I want you to be content is this morning, what are you pursuing? Like, what am I pursuing? What has our affection this morning? What has our gaze, right? And so if if our chins have been lifted and we're looking at King Jesus, right, and He has our gaze, He has our affection, 
right, our hearts tend to be more content. But if the bright, shiny lights that are calling to us, beckoning from us in the culture, have our gaze, have our attention, then we find that we're very rarely content. Very rarely content. I remember leaving Yemen, which was a very impoverished country, and, and Carmen and I took a trip just in the region to the UAE, which is a very wealthy nation. And like it was like cultural whiplash for us to walk in to a place where we had been used to everything was just kind of bland and, and poor, but people were, were, were satisfied for the most part. And then you go into this place that was like, it's like the Vegas of the Middle East, right? And it's just this, like I went through like sensory overload because everything is bright and it's shiny and it's new and it's clean. And listen, because there was this immediate contrast, I was able to kind of see it as distasteful. But when you live in the middle of it, when you live in the middle of a culture saying, this is normal, this is normal, this is normal, the contrast goes away. And you find, I'm not very content. I, right? And I start to pursue the things of the world over the things of Jesus. And I find myself not being satisfied. Now listen, most of us this morning can affirm biblical truths and ethics about money. We know them and we can speak them, we can espouse them. But they may be not actually get into our hearts. They may not actually be getting to our decision-making. They may not actually be having an impact on our day-to-day lives, right? And so if, right, the, the, what Paul is saying is, are you satisfied? Are you content with Jesus? Because the world around us is saying, don't ever be satisfied. Right? This is some of the smoke that Ecclesiastes is telling us that we can spend our life chasing. Right? Where we see the vapor, we see the smoke, and we think we can grab it, but every time we get close enough, Right? It just kind of dissipates and it moves on and we can still see it and we're trying to hold it and we can spend 60, 70, 80, 90 years pursuing this thing that we can see, that we can smell, that we can almost taste and we can never hold it. We can never actually grab it. We can never make it ours. And so we will spend a life pouring ourselves out for something that does not satisfy us. I want you to imagine... Um, the last time you were around a bunch of kids, right? Little ones. And you're looking around the room, and there's toys galore. There's all the things they need to have fun. And then one of those entitled ones walks over and goes, I'm bored. And like the, just the fury that you feel, right? When you're like, the insanity of the moment where you're like, you're what? Like, and your immediate reaction is, well, do you know what it was like when I was a kid, right? And, and like you go immediately back to, I wish I had had. And you start to just, and it's just, it's aggravating and it's frustrating. And you then have a, a really well-timed, right, very pointed lecture for them as to where those things can go and why they shouldn't feel the way they feel. And we can feel like angsty and frustrated about it until it's us. Right? And then there's no one to give us that lecture. When we start to look around and go, oh, I just don't... Right? And, and it's we're actually mimicking our children in that. When we are not satisfied, when we are not content, when we are constantly craving 
more. And the things that we have no longer bring that little bit of joy to our life, and so we need something in addition to it. Right? And we see the ugliness in little ones, and we don't like the mirror turned back on ourselves. And so it's a reminder to us as He tells us to be content and we realize how, how rarely we are content that we need right a new heart. We need new eyes to see things rightly, to see the expectation and the contrast of the world around us. Let's look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Like, what is Paul reminding Timothy and us of here? This isn't our home. Like, quite simply, this isn't our home. You didn't come in with anything, and you're not leaving with anything. This isn't where you belong. This is temporary. And anything you have, you've been given. And I say, wait a second, I've worked really hard. Yes, but if you've worked hard, you had the body and the energy given to you by God to do it. If you've done it with your mind, you've been given a mind. Right? Like, like we, we want to like real quick kind of bow up our chest and say, I've done this. But what do we have that we weren't given by the Lord? The means and the ability and the effort and the time right, to do these things has been given to us from the Lord. And so it is a reminder to us that, we one, this isn't our home. It's temporary. But also, God owns it all, and we are merely stewards of it. We are managers of it, right? Honoring what He would have us to do with it. As we went through Luke earlier this year, there were tons of warnings about finances in Luke. And one that we don't turn to often but is, is in Luke 16, right? As we were talking about the unscrupulous kind of money manager. But Jesus says something interesting. He says this in verse 9 of Luke 16. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. He doesn't mean wealth that you have gained by unrighteous ways. He's just simply saying that wealth is temporary. It's worldly. It's not spiritual. It's not eternal. It's simply a tool. He says, so use this worldly, un, uh, you know, non-spiritual thing, right? So that when it fails, because it will, because it's temporary, because you will die someday, that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So he's basically saying, take this thing that you have in this world, this tool that's been given to you, and use it for the benefit of others. That as you encourage, and as you bless, and as you care for, that when you make it to heaven someday, when you walk in, that there are folks there saying, you ministered to me. Through this thing, through this wealth, through these, this tool that was given to you. That you would be welcomed into heaven because you didn't hoard it, but that you used it and you saw it rightly. He continues, look at verse 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. How beautiful is that? And how much do we not believe it? Right? Like with food and clothing, we will be content. What does Paul remind us? He's, he's readjusting our attention here to the necessities of life. Because even this morning in this room, there is right, a disparity right, on where you're at in wealth. But if you took everyone in this room, all of us, compared to the rest of the world and throughout most folks throughout human history, we're a wealthy people. And, I, and we hear this said often. 
But listen, when we make comparisons, we tend to do this. We tend to look at, okay, here's what I have. Who's got more? Right? And so our comparison's only to those who have more, so then I can feel justified in everything I think, I feel, I desire, I covet, I want. We very rarely turn and go, who do I have more than? Like, right, it's only this way. I want to pretend like this doesn't exist. And he's reminding us here. He's like, listen, be content with the necessities of life. Right? Because you've, this isn't our home. We don't have to put down deep roots here. He continues in verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. He does not say it is all kinds of evil. It's the root of it. It is through this craving, listen, of this warning that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. When we are reminded that this isn't our home and that it's temporary, that someone would walk away from the faith for a temporary thing that won't satisfy them, that they'll spend their life simply longing for more and never quite grasping, they would leave Jesus right for a temporary thing. This is horrendous and terrifying. It is a warning to us that there is a deceitfulness to wealth that would make you say, I want that more than Jesus. He says there, would be, there are those that right, were a part of us that now are pursuing this, have been snared into the trap, and now want wealth over Jesus. I want you to listen to how Jesus describes this in Matthew Chapter 13, the parable of the sower, he's, he's talking about riches. And in verse 22, he says this, For what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But listen, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus is saying, listen, wealth will choke out your love of Jesus and your love of the word. And it's deceitful. You won't know it's happening. Right? You'll think you're pursuing something that's okay, and in, in the meantime, it's just choking any affection, any love you have for Jesus. And it doesn't do it immediately, right? Because you would then know what's happening, because you wouldn't be breathing, right? Like you'd be like, oh, I think this is trying to deceive me. It's subtle. It's and it's just one step. And one step. And instead of from one degree of glory to the next that you're being transformed, it's from one deceit to the next. You're walking away from Jesus until it's said of you, right, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we're reminded of the warnings of Scripture. And we're reminded that Proverbs, which speaks about money a ton, says there are unique temptations and warnings both for those who are impoverished and those who are rich. It's not simply that you cross some threshold and now there's a warning for you. There are warnings and risks for all of us, whether this morning you have basically nothing, or whether you have whatever the world could offer. Temptation if you're poor, right? To steal, to, 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 to think you've been forgotten and forsaken, and to curse God and die. And if you have all that you could desire or long for, you say, what need of God do I have? 
right? And everything in between. And there's this constant temptation to believe that we've done it or God is against us. There is warning and risk whether you have much or you have little. Both ends of the spectrum can be controlled by the desire for more. And then he continues. Verse 17. And as for the rich in this present age, right? He notices like, yeah, you're rich, but it's not, it's not like rich for eternity. You're rich now. Charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Right? An idol is being revealed to us here. Because an idol is something that we begin to make God-like. And right, money is one of the easiest things we can make an idol out of because it brings comfort. It brings a level of certainty. It brings a level of security. It brings a level of provision. It brings a level of hope. Because money in this world gets things done. It does. Right? There's a reason that people pursue it because money does some things. Right? But he's reminding us that as you pursue money in this way, right, and when you begin to have it, pride begins to develop. Why? Because we begin to find our identity in it and our success in it and our approval in it. It's why you don't you very rarely see someone that has a lot like say, I'm not gonna do that job anymore. I'm gonna come do something that makes almost nothing. Because it's not because they're unwilling or haven't had the desire or thought to, but it's because approval and success and identity are so attached together, right? That Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be proud nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So he's saying, this idol will for a moment please you and satisfy you until it fails you. And it may be too late when you realize it's going to fail you. But instead, right, the contrast is, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's saying that God provides actual security, eternal security. That If you're in His hand, you are safe forever. He provides actual hope, actual peace with God. Everything that we need for life and godliness. He sets our identity. It's not about whether you're poor or you're rich, whether you're successful or known or you're like forgotten. He says you're mine. You're my adopted son or daughter. I set your value. I set your worth. I set your identity. You belong to me, and you have a seat at the table. Wealth is fickle. Riches are uncertain. And they lie to us, and they deceive us, and they, they snare us, and we can't grasp them. Listen, this is why the prosperity gospel is absolutely wicked. Because it says we can have everything the culture promises us. Right? Like, I can have your cake and you can eat it too. Right? When Jesus simply is constantly warning us about the danger of money and what it does to our heart. And so He continues there to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. Like He's saying, like the image you have here is someone who's holding it loosely going, this, it's just money. Right? And you're going, but they're rich, it's easy to say to rich. And He's saying, no, no, it's, it's a heart issue that we hold this tool loosely, ready to do good works, ready to be generous, 
ready to share. Why? Why would we do this? Because the world would say it's insane. Why? Storing up treasures in verse 19 for themselves in heaven. A good foundation for the future. Why? That you may take hold of that which is truly life. What Paul is telling us is a contradiction to the world that says, you know how you get the good life? Money. Power. Influence. Success. That will get you the good life. It will buy whatever you need. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. The good life is Jesus. Because there's hope and there's joy and there's peace and there's security. And these things are not fleeting. They're not temporary. They're eternal. They're lasting. And you get to be generous with them. You get to give of them freely. So, what are some issues? If we're, if we're going to just summarize a few in Scripture with money. Then it never satisfies. Like if we could walk away today just going, it will never satisfy us. In there's a passage I did not mark. In Ecclesiastes chapter five. Verse ten says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Right? It's that smoke. It's just clear. You won't be satisfied. You won't. The next raise will not satisfy you. Temporarily, yes. But not long term. Like he's, he's, he's beating this to death. It will not satisfy. It is a trap and it's like the fire we talked about last week that sin is never satisfied. You never have enough bitterness. If you're bitter, you need more. If you're lustful, you need more lust. If you're greedy, you need more. To, if you're covetous, like the fire is never satisfied. You continue to have to give logs to it. It is the same with our pursuit of wealth. It chokes, it deceives, it, it traps. So it's, we're never satisfied. They're temporary. And they give a false hope, a false identity. They lie to us. And you may say, yeah, yeah, but I only get one life. I want to enjoy it. What would Scripture tell us? Yes, you only get one life. And then you die. And then you meet God. And you will stand before Him. Right? And saying our hearts should long and cry to hear our Savior look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because the way you took this tool, this temporary thing, this unrighteous thing, this worldly thing, and used it to meet the folks who you were ministering to. I'm pleased with the way you handled this tool. This thing. Enter into your reward. Enter into eternity. And others will stand, right, in judgment that no money will pay you you to get out of. The no effort will change in that situation. And so you're not a fool to live for eternity and not for temporary. That Jesus gives us our identity and our hope and our peace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, once again, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he writes this 
about Jesus. Verse 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. He's not talking bank account here. He's saying we were desperate. We were at war. We were rebels. We had no hope, no redemption available. And then Jesus, rich in heaven, steps out and becomes poor and humbled and mocked and beaten and spit upon and crucified so that those of us who are devoid of any means of changing our situation can be at peace with God, can know Him and be right with Him and be everything that we need for life and godliness, that we become wealthy because we become co-heirs with Christ of all creation. The one who owns it all says, come and sit at my table. Right? You think about walking through the fanciest restaurant and someone, a celebrity right now, that you, and they go, hey, come sit at my table. Man, like you would be enthralled in that scenario, looking to get a picture, like people wondering who I am, right? The creator of the universe who made it all, who owns it all, says, come sit at my table, son and daughter. Why would we want trinkets that will burn up and fade away? We get Him. We are rich in Him because He walked the life we were meant to live, died the death that you and I deserve, and defeated sin, Satan, and death and has walked out of the tomb confirming it's all true in this morning, right? Ministers to us. And so, would we hear this passage that we turn to often, but would we, be, would we hear it with different ears this morning? This is Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Who? He who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Listen, if you have wealth this morning, your wealth doesn't buy salvation. And if you have nothing this morning, Jesus says, come and buy. Right? Come and enjoy it without. There are no hurdles or barriers for either the wealthy or the poor or anyone in between. Right? Jesus has made a way and He's inviting us to the feast to be with Him for all eternity, for all time. Come and enjoy. And so this morning, as we, as we wrap this up, would we be reminded that money is a tool? Right? It's merely a tool. It's not evil and wicked in, a, in and of itself. It's been corrupted. But it can be redeemed by God's children who are using it rightly and accordingly as the temporary tool that it is. Would we let Jesus this morning loosen its grip on our hearts? That Jesus would have a tighter, firmer grip on us. He would have our affection. He would have our gaze. He would have our attention, not our bank account, not our savings, not our retirement. That He would do it. And because of that, as He loosens that grip, if you would be so brave to pray that prayer, would you know that what He may ask of you may, will not look like anyone else in the room? There's not a rule or a law here. We see this in Scripture that some come with a tremendous wealth and He says, sell it 
all and follow me. Others, he does not ask that of. He knows their heart. He knows what grips their heart. And, right, and, and when Peter and John are being told what their futures would hold, right, they're going, whoa, 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 whoa. you told me what's going to, what about him? If Jesus asked something specific of you, would you obey him in it? And not go, well, what about that family? Not, what about that person? What are you going to ask of them? He said, no, you obey me. You obey me. And so would we be careful when the Lord is guiding someone and calling them to obedience that we not talk them out of obeying Him by saying, oh, that's not wise. That's not what God would have you do. Right? That we would give biblical encouragement and wisdom and prayer, but that we would obey the Spirit as He guides us. Listen, it would be far easier this morning if we could just simply say, write this much out. Give this much away and then do what you want with the rest. But God says, no, no, no. Obey me with all of it. Trust me with all of it. Let me guide and lead and give you wisdom for all of it. Because we can't do it all. If you think about all the beautiful, wonderful, necessary ministries in the world, you cannot give to all of them. You can't do... You can't do foster care and adoption and international missions and homeless ministry and drug ministry, right? And special needs ministry, right? Like you can just start listing and listing and listing and listing and listing and listing and listing. What has God called you to do? And so we are praying for, we're supportive of, we're encouraging, and when He asks us to move, we gladly do it. And we don't worry about what He's asking of someone else. We obey Jesus. We trust Him with what He has given us as resources. It is a means of helping live out the one another's and of bearing burdens with one another. It's a means of reflecting the generosity of Jesus to a watching world. As Matthew 6 would say, where your treasure is, right? That's where your heart is. What our treasure as a church this morning be Jesus. Not something that will burn up. 2 Corinthians 8 also tells us to be generous always according to your means. It's not until you have a certain amount, then you're generous. Be generous now. Even if that generosity pales in comparison numerically to someone else's. The call is to have a generous heart like Jesus. It's not about the amount. And would it impact the way that we think and make decisions? That we would play spot the lie, right, with our culture, like, oh, you're lying to me, because here's what Scripture says that we would constantly be checking our hearts in this regard. That we would be known by our giving. That the world would think we're crazy because the culture of the church should look different than the culture of the world when it comes to riches. And that we would live out Proverbs 3, 9, that we would honor the Lord with our wealth, whether a little or a lot. Right? Regardless of what we have, that we would honor and we would please Him. Because we have been those who have been invited to the table to come and eat without cost for us? Would we model and image that to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to a watching world that there is nothing that has our heart except Jesus? Let's pray. Father, when we look at Scripture, which there is so much of on money, And it's just a tender spot for us, Lord. 
we do find hope in it. We do find peace in it. We do find security in it. We do find identity in it. And this morning, God, we're asking you to strip that away. God, that we would hold it loosely and take hold of that which is the good life, which is you. And that we would be a faithful instrument in your hand as we use this instrument that you've put in ours. Father, would we not leave this morning wandering away from the faith, wanting more and more and more at the expense of you? Would we not leave believing that we can escape conviction or direction in this? Would we humbly and courageously ask you to show where it has too much of a grip on our heart? And would we ask you, God, what would you have me to do? And would we obey it? Lord, we want to look like you and your kingdom, not like the world. We want to please and honor you with this, not because it buys us salvation, God, because it shows that we belong to you. God, thank you for the seat at the table. For those who don't yet know that, don't yet know that they are son and daughter, God, would you call them this morning to taste and see that you're good. In Jesus' name, amen.